Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. Anyone who wants to be president has to come through New Hampshire first, and no one covers New Hampshire politics like WMUR. I'm WMUR political director Adam Sexton, and we hope you can join us every week for this podcast. Mayor Pete Buttigieg has already done something extraordinary in the 2020 presidential race, going from relative unknown to top-tier contender over the span of just a few months. Now the South Bend mayor is working to harness the momentum behind his candidacy into a campaign that can put him in the White House. And the mayor is our guest this morning. Thanks for joining us. Good to be with you. Okay, so you're out with a new mental health plan, Mm -hmm. and uh, there's a big... conjoined area there between mental health and drug abuse. Obviously, New Hampshire has the opioid crisis. So what do you envision happening here? You know, I remember doing a town hall in Claremont, and I asked how many people knew somebody who was affected by addiction, and almost all of the hands went up. And it's not just here in New Hampshire. It's coast to coast, but certainly a a big issue here. What we've got to do is recognize that all of these issues are connected. Mental health broadly, addiction in particular, and then what we have going on with the opioid crisis. And we've got to support communities developing their plans to do something about it. That's why I've proposed $10 billion a year in support in grants to help communities come up with solutions. But also, we need to drive solutions at the systemic level. That means breaking the silence and ending the stigma around mental health and addiction. Remember, this is something that impacts just about every family, just about every workplace in some way, and yet it's still talked about sometimes like it's uh, it's something to be ashamed of or we've got to kind of keep it in the corner. That's a cultural issue as well as a policy issue. On the policy side, what we've got to do is expand access to mental health providers and make it as routine as physical health is. Now, on the books, we have what's called parity. In theory, it means that insurers are supposed to cover mental health just as much as physical health. In reality, we don't see that happening. When I'm president, we're going to enforce that kind of parity so that we really do see the ability to access mental health resources just as much as physical health. What about veteran suicides? It's almost mind-boggling that uh, in this country we have uh, almost two dozen veterans a day taking their lives. What is your plan going to do about that? You know, as a veteran, it's so disturbing to me to know how many people, often who were deployed into dangerous environments, survive their deployment but don't survive their battle with mental illness. It's why we've got to make sure that there's more access to providers for veterans. It's why we've got to reinforce what's available at the VA. You know, so many folks in the VA tell us that they just don't have the level of funding or the level of staff that they need. And we've got to do more with resources like telemedicine and telepsychiatry, not to replace in-person care, but as a supplement, especially when you're talking about rural areas where somebody might be a long way from the nearest VA facility or provider. There's a lot that you can do using those means, but only if we have the kind of wireless access and broadband in order to connect people in. And that's something else we've got to work on, especially in rural areas. The president sees mental health as a core issue in relation to the mass shootings that we see, unfortunately, so often in this country. Democrats are upset that he won't sort of allow the new gun laws to come into the conversation. But what do you think of that point, though, that even if you did take away all the guns, that you would still have these angry, disaffected, homicidal people out there willing to harm folks? Well, the reality is somebody with mental illness is more likely to be a victim of violence than a perpetrator. And I think when the president tries to use mental illness and mental health as an excuse for inaction on guns, it makes it harder for us to act both around gun safety and around mental health. Now, what I 
I will say is that we have a crisis of belonging in this country that is even deeper than things that are seen in the clinical environment. And it, I think it's contributing to deaths from despair, as they're called. Uh, that is not just opioids, but other overdoses, not just substance abuse, but uh, suicide in general. And uh, we are seeing this accelerate. Uh, younger generation now uh, is reporting to be the, the loneliest yet. And uh, a majority of young people uh, report uh, very alarming things like the idea that uh, they don't feel anyone knows them well. Uh, the social isolation of seniors is taking years off the life of our seniors. We can do something about it, and it's one of the reasons why my plan for national service includes service opportunities for people helping those struggling with addiction and uh, helping uh, get to know people of different generations to deal with that issue on the senior side. Do you see any intersection between the mental health issue and the rise of white nationalism in this country, or is that a purely political problem? You know, the vast majority of people who uh, commit crimes are not uh, doing it because of mental illness. We're talking about the, the cause the intersection of hate and the availability of guns. Look, anybody with, with a, a mental illness needs to get treatment, but we also need to uh, recognize that there, there is a range of issues uh, around mental health uh, in the same way that with physical health. You have any, anything from a common cold to a serious uh, case of cancer. Sometimes we talk about mental health like uh, it's only uh, extreme and serious mental illness when actually uh, there are routine experiences with depression that people should uh, not be afraid to talk about. And part of destigmatizing mental health is recognizing that there are different levels of severity instead of making it sound like every mental health challenge is something that could uh, lead to a, a, a crime or a suicide. The president just had a rally here in Manchester, about 12,000 people in the arena, another 8,000 or so on the outside. Uh, this Democratic primary has made him out essentially to be a racist. Those accusations are out there, a white nationalist. This crowd, though, th there was some diversity. There were people of color. There was a large contingent of Vietnamese Americans. So if, as Democratic candidates contend, the president is a racist, why are people of color at this rally and being welcomed at this rally? Well, again, the president is unpopular among the American people, and he is especially unpopular among people of color, largely because, I think, of the way that he has treated in his rhetoric, in his language, and sometimes in his policy, uh, people uh, of varied, uh, varied backgrounds in this country who are being singled out for different kinds of harm. Uh, you can always find some, some people to, to uh, support you or to uh, fill a rally, but the reason for his remarkably high unpopularity, I think, ties back to his failure to address the most important problems that are impacting us as Americans. Uh, we're on the cusp of an economic crisis crisis, and he's talking about uh, buying Greenland. We have a huge uh, mental health challenge in this country, and, and, and he's making it sound like uh, uh, people with mental illness are to blame for the majority of gun violence in this country. There's no actual plan for dealing with any of the things that are affecting our lives, and I believe that's how he will be defeated. But I also believe he's not going to be defeated automatically. The Democrats could, in fact, find a way to lose this election, and the way we would lose is if we look like all we have to offer is a return to the old status quo, because that wasn't working either. Uh, America definitely cannot survive four more years of this presidency and be a healthy republic, but we also can't go back to what we had before. It is time for a new normal where the economy actually works for most of us and where we actually feel that our country is getting ahead. We don't have that now, and that's part of how this president got here in the first place. What about those voters who might feel alienated, though, by those accusations of racism, that they feel lumped in, perhaps unfairly?
necessarily uh, as a Trump supporter? Well, I think what we're asking voters to think about is what they are tolerating. There are a lot of people who say they're they're not voting for him because of the racism, but in spite of it. Uh, but what kind of argument is it, first of all, to say that you should tolerate racial, uh, the kind of racial rhetoric of this president? And secondly, his argument up to now has basically been, hey, tolerate the chaos, tolerate the, race, uh, the racial remarks, uh, tolerate the bad example for your children. Just put up with all of that because I'm delivering for you economically. But if you actually look at the economy, he's delivering job growth almost as good as we had in the Obama years. And that may be coming to an end. So it's an argument that, that just doesn't make sense. And I think it cheapens the moral character of voters and of the decision before us. There's any number of reasons why people might have voted the way they did in 2016. But in 2020, uh, I think that uh, he has a very low level of respect for voters' judgment if he thinks they're just going to come along with this forever. We, we just can't take any more of this. It is exhausting. And more importantly, it is not solving the problems that are actually affecting us in our everyday lives. The White House is out with a new policy at the border uh, that would end family separation, but then could possibly detain those families indefinitely. Uh, I'm guessing you oppose that idea. But what to do about, uh, CNN was reporting 430,000 family members, migrants, coming to the border so far just this year. That seems like an unsustainable number to absorb into this country. Locking up families is not the solution. Of course, we need a modern and secure border. We also need policies that respect the lawful right to seek asylum and that respect the integrity of the family unit, things like a family case management program to get these cases cleared quickly and efficiently. Uh, but more broadly, we need to fix a broken immigration system that uh, hasn't really gone through major reform in the last 30 years. Remember, this is not the first time we've seen this level of migration. It is the first time that we've seen this level of chaos at the border. And that's a result of the cruelty and the incompetence of an administration from a president who said when he ran for office that he was going to fix this issue. Instead, it has gotten dramatically worse on his watch. And while we're at it, we've also seen a lot of things that shock the conscience of the American people and do not make us safer. If you're president, how are you approaching what's going on in Hong Kong right now? Well, first of all, the people in Hong Kong need to know that they have support. The president hasn't supported them, but uh, I will. And China needs to hear the message that if they are going to perpetrate another Tiananmen Square in the case of Hong Kong, they will be isolated from the community of democratic nations. Uh, nobody's been willing to say that in this White House, but uh, this is a moment where, whether it's Hong Kong, Russia, Saudi Arabia, the world needs America right now. The world needs uh, somebody to be standing up for democratic values and human rights. But it can't be just any America. It has to be an America that's actually living up to our values at home. If we do that, when we do that, it will be better for us and it will be better for the world. So you've made it this far in the race. Uh, there was those humble roots, and now you've got this big-time campaign, $24 million in that big fundraising hall. So how do you reconcile those two things and move forward both as sort of Mayor Pete from South Bend, Indiana, and this big-time candidate? Well, this operation began with four people sharing a cramped office in South Bend in January, and now uh, we have a top-tier campaign. But there's a long way to go from where we are now to winning the presidency. Uh, we know that that's going to come about by way of the hard work that the organizers on the ground are doing. All the fundraising that we've done is mainly in order to build the team that's going to do that unglamorous relationship building work uh, that happens often quietly out of view in the summer and fall and is going to lead to victory early next year. All right, Mr. Mayor, thanks for your time. Thank you. We'll see you back here soon. Good to be with Appreciate you. Appreciate it. Life's beautiful moments, sunsets, landscapes, wildlife. That's WMUR's U Local Facebook group. Join this growing community and browse the stunning images captured by viewers like you or share your own. Get started at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash WMUR9. Go to groups and join U Local. See you there.
2020 candidate Tim Ryan's presidential campaign took an unexpected turn earlier this month when a mass shooting in Dayton rocked his home state of Ohio. After joining in the grieving process and speaking out quite forcefully on the issue of gun control, the congressman is back on the campaign trail and joins us this morning on Close Up. Congressman, thanks Great for being to be here. with you. So how has Dayton changed your campaign? Well, it, it came home, you know. People said, well, why'd you leave the campaign trail for a few days? I said, it's like a death in the family. You go home, you drop everything you're doing, and you go home. And just to see again what what's happening in the United States, it's just infuriating to me that the president and Mitch McConnell are going to continue to stop this. And it, it changed my life because I was there. It was in Ohio. This has been continued to happen. We're all, I think, at the boiling point here of wanting to do something about it. And I want to be a leader in that movement and have been. And we took this caravan through Ohio down to see Mitch McConnell in Louisville, not his house, but in, you know, in downtown Louisville to make the case. And we are going to keep applying the pressure. This is a big issue for me. I got three kids that are in public schools. My wife's a teacher. Enough's enough in America. We're tired of being afraid. You used to have an A rating from the NRA, correct? Yeah. How have you evolved on this, and how can you tailor your message to convince other people to come with you on that? Well, I actually think it makes me the best messenger for why we need background checks, why we need an assault weapon ban, why we need to research gun violence. It's because I come from Ohio. I hunt with our oldest son at least once a year and I've got that background to say look I think my position changed like a lot of Americans positions have changed on this we watched what was happening and we watched the NRA do nothing and so my votes over time slowly changed and then at one point I was so frustrated after Nevada I took every dollar that I got from the NRA and I gave it to every town I gave it to Gabby Giffords I gave it to Sandy Hook and started to become a leader on this issue uh, but I can go to Ohio and Wisconsin and Michigan and, and Pennsylvania and and say look I hunt too. We're not talking about hunting rifles. We're not talking about you protecting your family. We're talking about weapons of war on the street. We're talking about background checks that 90% of the American people uh, are for. So who best to make that argument? I think it's me. President Trump signaled support for background checks and then sort of brought it back again. It's a tactic he seems to have used quite a bit when things like this happen. Do you believe he can ever be convinced to change on this, or is he just going to keep doing the same thing? No, he's just going to do the same thing, and it's, it's so infuriating to see him ignore the emotional state, the pain uh, of the families that are going through this. Because I heard an interview with someone from Parkland, a parent who lost their kid at Parkland in Florida. And Trump told him, we're going to do something about this. And then he didn't. And now he's saying it again after Dayton and El Paso. We're going to do something. And the families are there saying, please, this is a nonpartisan issue. 90% of the American people support this. And I think the president, thats he's not understanding that the ground is shifting on this issue. He may be able to bottleneck this thing with Mitch McConnell, but Mitch McConnell's up in two years. And one of the things that's motivating me more, now more than ever is I want to be the nominee because I know I can go into Kentucky. I'm about three hours from Kentucky where I grew up. And I can go in there with the Senate candidate that's running down there, and we can take Mitch McConnell out. And I think that's going to be an important part of the next campaign. If a recession comes, how does that impact what you're talking about on the campaign trail? And uh, 
What would you do if you're president to try and bring the country out of a recession? Well, I'm really worried that, that the big tax cuts uh, and our policies now over the past few years have put us in a position where we don't have many levers to pull if we get in a recession. Normally, you get into a recession, you cut taxes, you increase spending a little bit, and you weather the storm. It's the old Keynesian economic theory. Now, we have a trillion dollar a year deficits as far as the eye can see. The federal interest rates are very, very low, so there's not much room to cut on the monetary policy side. And so I'm worried. I mean, you have to, you would have to look at some tax cuts for uh, working class people, maybe the payroll tax like we did with President Obama to inject a little bit of money into the economy. But then you're going to get hurt on the other side with deficits. So we've got to come to some agreement here. I actually don't think raising taxes on the top 1%. We've seen CEOs have a 940% increase in their wages workers has been at 12%. So I really don't think a tax increase on them is going to be as damaging as it would normally have been in a normal traditional business cycle. But after this supply side economics for 30 years, we're in a, we're in a real pinch. Some point to the trade policy of the Trump administration is one of the drivers of a potential recession. Would you retain anything that he's done in terms of these tariffs and trying to hold China more to account? Look, I'm going to be honest. I like the fact that he was tough on China. I think they cheat with intellectual property. I think they subsidize their businesses. They have a very aggressive military. So his initial instinct of being tough with them, I thought was the right move. But it's been two and a half years now. Figure it out. Settle the deal. Like Take a good firm position and then make a deal because now you're, you're crushing our farmers. And he's not doing anything to beat China. One of the first things I'm going to do is appoint a chief manufacturing officer. China's dominating the electric vehicle market, the battery market, the solar panel market, 5G, uh, artificial intelligence. They're dominating. And what I want to do is have someone who reports directly to me and says, how do we dominate the electric vehicle market? Build those things in the United States. Build the batteries in the United States because those jobs pay 30, 40, 50 bucks an hour. I don't like the, the Democrats. I'm for the fight for 15. I voted for the increase in the minimum wage, but we got to be for 30, $40 an hour jobs. That's how you beat China. You outcompete China. And he's not doing that. It's just a big game for him. The DNC has its uh, debate threshold to meet for September. That's obviously intended to winnow the field. You're yeah. feeling like you've got some momentum, some wind at your yeah. back right now in this campaign. How do you get around that artificial barrier? You know, I find in the early states, God bless New Hampshire, Iowa, South Carolina, they're frustrated that the field's getting winnowed at this point. Um, so we've got some momentum. Everywhere we go in New Hampshire, we pick up voters. We got the support of Dan O'Neill and Bill Barry and Tim Bain, some of the most popular aldermen here in the city of Manchester. So we've got momentum. And, you know, we're going to see how we do in this next debate. And if we don't get on there, I think there's a good chance we'll get on the, the, the debate in October. But we're just building it out. I'm an old school guy. I'm not from a big city. I'm not from a big state. I didn't go to an Ivy League school, although I did go to Franklin Pierce Law School. Um, so I don't have that huge network of the money. So it's taking me a little longer, but I think it's deeper. And people are starting to see me as the guy who can beat Donald Trump. I'm from the Midwest, blue collar, talking about the future uh, issues around jobs. So I think we're going to keep picking up momentum and, and we're going to take this guy out. So debate or not, you're sticking with this. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We got some real momentum. Okay. Yeah. Uh, before we wrap up, uh, you some social media fun. You've challenged Andrew Yang to a dance-off. Is <laughs> yeah. that going to happen? And can we make it happen here in New Hampshire? I don't know. Well, this would this would be a very interesting place to do it. Uh, <laughs> I saw him after this, so we're going to see. We're having some fun with it, see where it goes. All right. Congressman yeah. Ryan, thanks for joining us on Close Up. Thanks. Hey, Facebook recently made some changes. Now you're missing out on lots of content from WMUR, but it's easy to stay connected. Go to WMUR's Facebook page, tap Follow, 
then see first. That's it. Just two taps brings you back in the know. He's the mayor of the financial and cultural capital of the United States. But while New York City has twice elected Bill de Blasio, he's still looking for that breakout moment in a very crowded Democratic presidential primary. Mayor de Blasio, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Adam. We appreciate your time. So a certain former constituent is the president of the United States, yes. Donald Trump. Uh, even by his standards, this last week was impressive in terms of the news cycle, uh, trying to buy Greenland, uh, referring to American Jews as disloyal if they vote for Democrats, and referring to himself, I believe, as the chosen one on the issue of trade. So if you are the nominee running against Donald Trump, how do you deal with the tornado of headlines that he is able to produce that can often change the conversation very quickly? Yeah, Adam, that's such an important issue. I just want to say that one comment in particular, uh, suggesting that Jewish Americans were disloyal if they didn't agree with his political views or they didn't agree with him. I mean, we really need to pause and realize how dangerous that is. Um, that is a, you know, suggesting disloyalty among people because they have a faith or because they have an ethnic background. That's been thrown at Jewish people for millennia, literally. And it's a really dangerous idea in a world where there's white supremacy rising up again. And again, Donald Trump's had a lot to do with that. So I hope this is one of the moments where, where folks across the board, and I do think a lot of people of conscience look at that and they say, wait a minute, that, that's now taking us to a very, very dangerous place. So we can't get numb to it. We can't get used to it. But in terms of how we fight back, as you're pointing out, the, the nominee of this party has to be able to take him on, not run after each tweet, but in fact, point out the fundamental contradiction of Donald Trump. He won because he told working people he'd take care of them. He did the opposite. He lied to working people. He said, I'm going to be on your side. He gave the biggest tax giveaway to the wealthy and corporations in a generation. His cabinet's millionaires and billionaires. He hasn't done anything for working people in the final analysis. And the Democrat needs to be the one to point that out and just recognize this guy. He, he doesn't do so well when you actually confront him. He's used to being a bully, in my opinion. And I've watched him a long time in New York. He's used to getting people to cower. If you don't cower, if you're strong, if you're forceful, throws him off his game. And that's what I do as the Democratic nominee. And I want uh, this whole country to be a country that puts working people first. But the Democratic Party has to stand for working people. And we haven't clearly enough for a while now. I believe with a message of working people first, with clear ideas about making the wealthy pay their fair share in taxes, putting money back in the hands of working people, that's how you beat Donald Trump and pointing out that he just said he was going to do one thing and did the exact opposite. You're one of the most progressive candidates in this race. What do you make of Bernie Sanders uh, changing his Medicare for All plan to include some protections for union-negotiated health care benefits? It seems like once you open that up and give something to somebody, there's going to be a line in terms of people wanting more there. Adam, I think where we all should um, go in terms of this discussion is to say, you know, is the goal universal health care or not? I'm someone who believes in universal health care. I'm someone who believes that our ultimate goal, it won't happen overnight, should be a single payer system, that we have great examples from around the world of that working much better for people, being more reliable, bringing down the cost of prescription drugs, making sure that people have a whole range of treatment. You know, in America today, God help you if you have a mental health condition of any kind, which is one in five American adults, a lot of insurance doesn't cover it. You want dental. A lot of insurance doesn't cover it. You have a serious disease. Your insurance runs out. 
There are so many things wrong with the current insurance system because it's based on private insurance, based on private companies and their needs. That's why people get hit time and time again with the premiums, the deductibles, the out-of-pocket expenses, the co-pays. When I talk to working people, when I talk to middle-class people, they say their insurance is barely sufficient and in a lot of cases just doesn't reach what they need. So I say a universal model, it'll take some time. I think union members have a right to say, prove to us uh, that this new plan will be better before you transition us off of ours. That's right, we should go through that kind of transition. But I'll tell you one thing, for union members, uh, unions have had to fight for health care for generations. If it was provided as part of a national vision, it's actually going to strengthen the hand of the labor movement to be able to focus on wages and working conditions and a lot of other things. So I say this is the right way to go. Uh, let's agree that we need universal health care. Let's agree that Americans should ha have to ration their health care. And then we'll figure out how to make sense of things like those union plans that are worthy of respect until we can show them we can do something even better. What do you make of the state of Israel denying entry to representatives uh, Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar? They both support the uh, boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, BDS. You've been an outspoken opponent of yes, BDS. What do you think about that decision? So I support the state of Israel very strongly, and I oppose BDS with everything in me because I think it's actually trying to undermine the survival of Israel. And therefore, I'm a perfect person to say that what the government of Israel did was a huge mistake. You do not exclude uh, elected members of the U.S. Congress from Israel and think that that's okay. It's not okay. That we are their closest ally. We are their lifeline. And I'm proud that America is that for Israel. And we have to keep being that. But you know what? When, when you start excluding people based on their political views, that's a very, very dangerous precedent. And as someone who opposes BDS intensely, I don't fear a debate over BDS. I don't fear that there are some members of Congress who might see things differently. Let's have that fight. Let's have that good, honest, democratic debate. But excluding people from a nation, uh, that enters into a realm that's very dangerous in terms of democracy. I fundamentally oppose it. And I actually think uh, the government of Israel should immediately reverse that decision. All right, Mayor de Blasio, we thank you for your thank time you. on Close Up. Appreciate Pleasure, it. Pleasure, Adam. Thanks for joining us for WMUR's The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. If you have a moment and can write a review or subscribe to this podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can also find us on WMUR.com and our free WMUR app 24-7. See you for the next episode of this podcast next week.